Hello all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry. Clay Lowry serves as the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. For this episode, I'll be talking about an important and evolving topic in the world of finance, and that's digital assets. I need to give a little basic overview of what digital assets are, which is a digital file or material that has value and can be owned and transferred by individuals. Many, though not all, digital assets are bought, sold, and held in a decentralized database, which is known as a blockchain. After a digital asset transaction is made, the transaction is added to a block of data that is connected to another block of data, making a chain formation, hence the name blockchain. The use of blockchain allows for the transfer of some digital assets without a central party, such as a bank, and each block in the chain has a complex and unique computer-generated code to help protect the transaction and makes it extremely difficult to hack. In other words, we're talking about cryptography, which is one of the reasons why you hear the word cryptocurrency used very often. So let's look at some way of trying to categorize these digital assets and try to make it a little less complicated. Three of the ones that I'm going to talk about today are cryptocurrencies, stable coins, and central bank digital currencies. Cryptocurrencies are essentially unbacked currencies. So they're not issued by a central authority. They're not backed by a central bank or a monetary authority like a traditional currency is. What they are is they're backed by cryptography. There are thousands of cryptocurrencies that are publicly traded and are gaining in popularity. The ones that you probably have heard of most are Bitcoin or Ethereum, but there are many, many others. Stable coins are a type of cryptocurrency that is supposed to be stable because it is backed by a reserve asset. In other words, it is pegged to a currency, potentially to a commodity price, with the aim of achieving price stability. Central bank digital currencies, which I'll refer to as CBDCs, are actually designed by the central bank itself as just essentially a digital equivalent of cash. There are nearly 100 countries in the world that are exploring the use of CBDCs. A few countries have actually launched a digital currency, including Nigeria and the Bahamas, and some have launched pilots, including China and Sweden. Most, on the other hand, are doing research, they're exploring the feasibility of a CBDC, and they're considering design characteristics, including the United States and the ECB, but more on that later. So what are the pros and cons of these digital assets? Secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department, Janet Yellen, recently gave remarks in which she stated that with any innovation in the financial sector, there are always risks and opportunities. So the benefits of digital payments include that they could lower transaction fees, they would offer faster processing times, And theoretically, they would offer a way to streamline cross-border payments, which is a notoriously cumbersome process. In addition, digital assets, including CBDCs, 
supposedly could create broader access to digital money for the public and reduce barriers to financial inclusion, which would help serve unbanked and underbanked populations. However, and there is a however, as you would imagine, policymakers are concerned about a number of aspects of digital currencies. Theoretically, they increase the risks of illicit finance, such as money laundering, cybercrime, human trafficking, which may bring harm to already vulnerable populations. They are vulnerable to hacking or computer intrusions. These currencies are supposed to be a stable store of value. But whatever you may think of cryptocurrencies, there is little that is stable about it. They're very volatile in the markets, which is most likely going to lead to consumer and investor protection concerns. Stable coins, on the other hand, may not be actually fully backed, which also could lead towards consumer investor protection concerns, but it also could lead toward run risk, which is when in the middle of a crisis, everybody runs away, and so therefore the value drops even further. Another aspect is environmental risk or climate change risk, because in order to create a cryptocurrency, you need a lot of computer power, and that power actually is a drain on energy resources. CBDCs, which are, as I said earlier, are backed by the central bank, seems like it could mitigate some of these risks by centralizing the infrastructure of the digital currency. On the other hand, it does raise a fundamental question, which is, do you want a government actor, the sovereign, being involved in the retail space? It alters the roles and responsibilities of a central bank, which may actually impact the implementation of monetary policy, or it actually may create a competitiveness problem with the role of financial institutions in the system. In sum, there is a major dispute about whether digital assets are an overall good or an overall bad for society. Because of this overall dispute, it plays out in thinking about what are the implications for the financial system? What about the regulatory issues that are involved? Could there be national security issues and yes, of course, are there actual political ramifications? Let's first look at implications for the financial system. Digital assets are changing the way we think about money, and they could transform the global financial system away from the traditional way of processing transactions to a much more decentralized era of finance. Their popularity has clearly grown, as we've seen the crypto asset market's capitalization grow three and a half times in 2021 alone. Due to this increasing popularity and the way they're changing the world of finance, digital assets are becoming a key topic of conversation among global policymakers and standard setters. Just in the last few months, we have seen standard setters such as the Basel Committee, which looks at the prudential aspects of financial system, the Financial Stability Board, which brings together central bankers, finance ministers, um, and regulators, and IOSCO, which tries to look at securities regulation around the world, weighing in on how to think about these assets. We've also seen key regulators and supervisors in countries as diverse as Australia, Hong Kong, the United Kingdom, the United Arab Emirates, and the United States discuss these developments and put forward proposals to make sure that these assets are kept within some sort of regulatory perimeter. With the European Central Bank Governor Fabio Panetta delivering just this last week a speech in which he said something very subtle 
about cryptocurrencies, that they are speculative assets that could cause major damage to society and liken them to a Ponzi scheme. In the United States, there have been accusations that the regulators and supervisors have been a little bit behind the curve on thinking about digital assets. I'm not sure that's correct, but I think that it has been a more deliberative process. And you've seen that play out over the last few months where you've seen Congress held hearings on the challenges and benefits of stable coins and other crypto assets. The President's Working Group, which brings together a variety of regulators in the executive branch in the United States, put out its principles on stable coins. The Federal Reserve published a discussion paper on CBDCs in January of this year to create a public discussion between the Fed and its stakeholders regarding the idea of a central bank digital currency here in the United States. And then lastly, President Biden pulled together on March 9th an executive order which outlined the U.S. government's approach to addressing risks and harnessing the benefits of digital assets. There were six priorities listed in the executive order, including consumer and investment protection, financial stability, the illicit use of digital assets, or at least mitigating them, U.S. competitiveness and leadership in the global financial system, financial inclusion, and responsible innovation. As you can tell, it goes back to my earlier point. There's clearly a dialogue going on about whether things are good or things are bad about digital assets. Two last points of interest about digital assets are whether or not do they create a national security risk. Does this undermine the role of the dollar if there are digital currencies being issued by central banks around the world? I'm not so sure that's much of a risk, but a different risk is whether or not could it undermine the sanctioning system that is based largely on the dollar. And that's something I think that the uh, Biden administration and Congress are looking at very carefully. And here in Washington, the U.S. Attorney General, which is basically the top cop in the United States, is working on ways to strengthen international law enforcement and global cooperation to detect, investigate, and prosecute criminal activity related to digital assets. And finally, are there political ramifications? I think the answer is yes, and you're starting to see some divide between those who want more innovation and see that the United States plays a leadership role and those that are concerned about investor protection or potentially financial stability or some other aspect, or that would like to see the central government play a bigger role in how we do things going forward. I think this will play out and, um, and hopefully something that doesn't happen often in the United States is that we will find compromise and a way forward uh, to try to address these important issues. Now for the three, two, one. First, Digital assets are here to stay. With a combined market capitalization of $3 trillion in November 2021, to put that in context, five years ago, that number was less than $50 billion, digital assets are not going anywhere. Second, policymakers and regulators around the world are working to put guardrails around digital assets to create uniform regulation and oversight. This is clearly not an easy feat, and it will take a coordinated collaboration from policymakers, central banks, private sector entities, and other global actors to create a framework that makes sense for digital assets and does not create a lot of fragmentation. And third, 
Future implications from this growing demand for digital assets have yet to be uncovered. We're beginning to understand the risks associated with digital assets. We're also trying to understand some of the opportunities, but clearly there is a lot more to learn. Two things that I'll be watching out for in the shorter term. One thing is what are the questions and feedback that will arise in response to the Federal Reserve's January paper, Money and Payments, the U.S. Dollar in the Age of Digital Transformation, which is due on May 20th. And second is, what do digital assets mean for the Russia-Ukraine crisis? At the start of the war, there was concern that cryptocurrency could be used by Russia to avoid sanctions. However, now the conversation has shifted, and cryptocurrency seems to be being used as a way to deliver aid to Ukraine in a much more effective and efficient manner. Going forward, it will be interesting to see how these narratives evolve and whether is crypto really a good humanitarian assistance mechanism or is it really just a sanctions avoidance mechanism or is it neither or is it both? My sports topic for today takes us to Europe where the UEFA Champions League has reached the semifinals and they're actually taking place this weekend before this podcast is released. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with this topic, the Champions League is the annual club competition organized among all the different European football leagues, which is soccer in the United States, and there are both men's and women's Champions Leagues. Let me talk about the women's league this time. There are four teams that are right now remaining. From France, both the teams of Lyon and Paris Saint-Germain. There's a team from Spain, Barcelona, as well as a team from Germany, Wolfsburg. A couple interesting points are that Lyon is clearly the powerhouse team in the Champions League as they have won the Champions League Cup for the last three years. And Barcelona is interesting because over a long period of time, one of the most successful franchises for the men's Champions League has been FC Barcelona. But over the last couple of years, they have actually been declining somewhat. And so the women's team is the one that is now holding up the flag for Barcelona. And maybe most importantly, in the United States, we receive lots of attention to the Men's Champions League. But just recently, when Barcelona, in its first semifinal game against Wolfsburg, won that game, they won it in front of over 90,000 fans in the stands. I think that's a pretty good sign for women's soccer in Europe and elsewhere. Anyway, I'll be looking forward to the finals, which will take place in May. That's it for today's episode. Join me next week on another episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at IIF.com. Please make sure to tune in next Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.